Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. John Grisham, when I first met him, mm. he came up to me, and he's a very charming, very sweet man. He goes in his southern accent, you are all over my house. Wow, what a treat we have today on this episode of the SIDCast. My name is Sid Finkelstein, and in my day job, I'm a professor of leadership at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. My side hustle, however, is the SIDCast. And it's become an absolute passion of mine. For about an hour, we get to talk to incredible guests with fascinating stories to tell. And I say we because while I'm the only host, I feel like I'm bringing each of you into the room and into the conversation with me and my guests each time that we do an episode. We have a seat next to us. And whether you're driving in your car right now as you listen or going for a walk or a jog or a workout or just hanging around the house, it doesn't really matter, but you're sitting with us. And on this episode of the SIDCast, I couldn't be more excited to welcome Jody Picot. I'm sure you know her. Jody Picot is the number one best-selling author of 25 novels, including My Sister's Keeper, 19 Minutes, The Storyteller, Leaving Time, and of course, the acclaimed number one bestseller, Small Great Things, which explored the issues of power, of privilege, and race, and has sold actually more than one and a half million copies. Jody's most recent novel, A Spark of Light, came out in 2018 and was her 10th consecutive instant number one New York Times bestseller. It was praised as, quote, Picot at her fearless best by the Washington Post. Jody's books have been translated into 34 languages in 35 countries. Four novels, The Pact, Plain Truth, The Ten Circle, and Salem Falls have been made into television movies. Small Great Things has been optioned for a major motion picture, that's set to star Viola Davis and Julia Roberts. The thing you notice when you talk to Jody Picot about her work is, is how professional she is as a writer and how committed she is to telling powerful stories that force us to confront ethical dilemmas we might prefer not to think so much about. She writes about gender, race, and abortion, takes headlines that leap from the press to something much more personal that we can all relate to and that touch us as human beings. It's a rare skill and art to open up the minds of readers in ways that many would almost certainly resist if they were preached to or lectured at. But she does it from the craft of writing by developing characters and contexts that make us stand up and pay attention, turning pages of her books as fast as we can. So on this episode of the SIDCast, sit down with us as we talk to Jody Pico. Hi, Jody. Hi. It's great to have you uh, with us on the SIDCast. I'm so, so happy. Uh, it's great uh, to be here. Yeah, of course, there were a couple of people waiting uh, before you got to my office <laughs> to sign books, but that's the way it goes. So you create a lot of, I guess, ethical dilemmas in mm -hmm. some of your, many of your stories, and a bunch of them about medicine, in fact. Yeah. My sister's keeper, of course, about the girl who's her parents, uh, mm -hmm. so she won't have to, I guess, donate a, a kidney, among other things. Right. Handle with care, the parents of a, of a sick child suing their doctor mm -hmm. for, quote-unquote, wrongful birth, which is really quite an expression. Mm -hmm. Mercy, which is about mercy killing, maybe others as well. So why, why that? Why, why did you go in that direction? Whenever I choose a book, what I'm usually trying to do is answer a question that I don't have the answer to. So I think that for me, the act of writing a book is very similar to the act of reading it for my reader. I'm weighing all different sides of a situation, and I may not change my mind by the time I get to the end of a book, but I usually know why my opinion is what it is. And sometimes the reasons for that opinion have changed. And when it comes to the books that I would call the medical cases, mm -hmm. it's usually because of something that I've discovered that didn't sit well with me. Often they are the intersection of medicine and law. There are many instances where law has not yet caught up to advances in medicine. Mm -hmm. And I think that most of the books that you're talking about are ones where that's happened, where we're still kind of in the wild west of medicine when it comes to IVF, for example, or wrongful birth suits. And we haven't really seen the evolution of the law to cover all of those issues yet. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I should probably say, too, I'm not a lawyer or a doctor, <laughs> but uh, but I do as much research as 
I need to, you know, right. for each particular Right, and you're legendary for the research that you, yeah. that you do. Uh, but this idea of wrongful birth. Yeah. Has there, like, there, there's never been a case like that, has there? Oh, yeah. How could there have been multiple you're suing cases your own like parents that. for wrongful birth or somebody else's suing? Someone else's What usually happens is, no, the parents sue the OBGYN for wrongful birth, saying, if I had known that my child was going to have all of these issues, these what, health issues, what I would have terminated what the pregnancy. What happens to the kid? Well, that's why I wrote the books in. <laughs> because usually what happens, I had yet in my research to meet a parent who did not actually want their child to be alive. But as you well know, we happen to live in a country where medical care is not always covered. And especially when it comes to children with profound disabilities, mm -hmm. there are the most ridiculous, stringent rules in place for insurance. You can only get a, a wheelchair. I think it's every five or 10 years for a child. Imagine the difference in size between, you know, oh a five-year-old and a 10-year-old, yeah, yeah. right? So, you know, things like that mean that a lot of these parents have had to come up with creative ways to try to make sure that their child has the best life possible given the confines of all those disabilities. Mm -hmm. And so there have been multiple cases where parents have sued the OBGYNs for not telling them they were going to have a child that was born with all these disabilities. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing is that emotion usually sways juries. And so, you know, they see these heartfelt parents coming in there and they issue these massive million dollar payouts to the parents of these children, sometimes in cases where, for example, there's a genetic malformation that has never been identified before. In other words, there's no way possible a doctor could have told a parent mm. this was going to happen because... They've never diagnosed it. And payouts from juries still happen in wow. you know the hundreds of thousands or the millions. Basically, for me, what was compelling about that story was, as you said, most of the parents who do this have profoundly disabled children who often will never progress beyond, you know, a six months old in terms of intellect and, and physical capabilities sometimes. But what if you came up with a situation like mm. that where there was a child mm. who physically had a lot of complications, but mentally was 100 percent there. Right. And that led me to, to find that kind of illness, which was osteogenesis imperfecta, which I wrote about in Handle with Care. Right. Right. Yeah. I just think about the kid. And e mm -hmm. even if the child is so mentally disabled, they can't understand. You're still telling the world there's something wrong with your child and that you're yeah. disappointed or upset. Right. Or even if you can convince the rest of the world that you're doing this because you love your child and you can't afford to take care of them any other way. To me, it really does become an interesting question if a child understands, has the capacity to hear you say in court, yeah. I would not have had this child if I'd known otherwise. Even if she can, mm. your mom can explain to you, but I'm only really doing this for you. I don't mean it. Yeah. It's, that's yeah. a moral conundrum. And it's hard to know what anyone would do unless you're in that situation. Right. Or unless you write fiction about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Several books on racism, color war, small, great things. Mm -hmm. Others, too. Why that topic? So in particular, Small Great Things to me is the book that I that resonates the most with me. It affected mm. me the most deeply as a writer. Mm. And I think it's because I had wanted to write about racism for about 20 years and I couldn't figure out how to do it. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't figure out how to do huh. it. And, you know, I had actually started about 25 years ago when I was very newly published writing a book called The Color of the Day that was based on a real-life story that happened in New York in the subway system. There mm. was an officer, an African-American undercover officer, who was shot four times in the back by colleagues, even though he was wearing what they called the color of the day, which is like a band on your wrist uh -huh. to say, I'm an undercover officer, don't shoot me. And that really upset me, and I mm -hmm. wanted to write about that, mm -hmm. but I kept failing and failing, and I finally put the book aside. And I realized that... I had to really ask myself, is this my story to tell? Yeah. And if it's not, why do I want to tell this story? And I realized that as a white woman, I'm never going to be able to tell a person of color in this country what they experience. But I can tell you what other white people think. Mm. And far too many of us, people who look like me, think, well, I'm not a racist. I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, I've never done anything that I could call 
prejudicial. I don't use the N word. I mean, any of those things Mm -hmm. that we use to make ourselves feel better without acknowledging that if you are born white in America, you get the winning lottery ticket. And there are so many systems in place that make your life easier, that give you what I would call tailwinds rather than headwinds. And, you know, and those are the systems of healthcare, of education, of just really almost everything, housing, Across the board, if you are white in America, you're going to have an easier time accessing all of those things and also reaching successful levels in all of them, much more so than if you're a person of color. And unfortunately, very few white people acknowledge that systemic racism exists. There is a difference between personal bias and systemic bias. And that's really the difference between, I think, prejudice and racism. Mm-hmm. And that was what I needed to write about. The fact that, you know, you and I can look at a skinhead and say, oh, that's a racist. But it's really hard to point to yourself and say the same thing. Right. right. And yet we really have to. Because the way I always think about racism, having done way too much research on this at this point, is, <laughs> you know, racism is like the moving walkway at the airport. If you are a racist, if you're a skinhead, you get on with your bag and you start walking. So you get to the other side faster. If you are an ordinary, well-mannered, well-meaning white person, you get on and you stand there with your bag. You're still going to get to the other side. If you really want to be anti-racism, you've got to turn around and run twice as fast. You have to actively go out and combat systems that benefit you. And I think it's vitally important. I learned so much about myself writing that book that Mm. was so unflattering because I really did think I was a good person. And I really hadn't focused on racism. And you know why? Because I don't have to. Because my kids aren't black and I don't have to tell them what to do if a cop pulls them over. Whereas every single African-American woman that I spoke with when I was doing research for this book has had that talk with her kids. You know, so I had to figure out that the reason why... I wasn't able to write about racism before this was because it's not my job to tell a person of color what their life is like. It is my job to tell the people who look like me to Mm -hmm. open their eyes up. Right. Yeah. You know, you just reminded me of I was at a conference maybe a year ago with CEOs and and there was a panel of this was around the time of the Super Bowl. So they were Mm ex-NFL players that were Mm African-American and they were talking about race uh, issues. Mm -hmm. And one of the CEOs who happened to be African-American and was very, very successful and is quasi-retired, late 60s. He talked about a story where mm-hmm. he not, it was, I think, the previous summer, uh, previous winter. He was in Florida and he was driving and uh, he sees a police car behind with the lights mm-hmm. flashing. And, and he pulls over and he, he said, I took my keys and I put them on the dashboard. I opened my windows and I put my hands out here on, on the dashboard because he knows. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's shocked I mean, it still shocks me to think about it as a white person. Yeah. I saw him and I saw the emotion. And this mm-hmm. is someone unbelievably accomplished. Mm-hmm. But yet that's what he had to deal with. Absolutely. I remember this one girl who um, had gone to Vassar and she was young. She was in her 20s. And she said that when she gets on public transportation, she always carries her Vassar water bottle. And she puts it facing out on the aisle yeah. so that as white people walk down, they'll know it's OK to sit next to her. Wow. So what what should we be doing in everyday life? How do we start to turn around? I mean, that analogy is a very yeah. visceral one. I get that. Right. We're on that little walkway and we've got to turn around and work mm-hmm. twice as hard to get backwards because it's it's moving forward, whether we like it or not. Right. I mean, there are lots of things that you can do, you know, starting from going to an organization like Stand Up for Racial Justice, which is mostly people who are not of color working mm-hmm. to combat racism mm-hmm. to tiny little things that you can do in your life, which is, you know, next time you hear someone make some kind of racial joke, instead of fading into the woodwork and pretending you didn't hear it, mm-hmm. which is what most of us do because we don't like a confrontation, call that person on it yeah. and say, why did you say that? It's not cool to say that. Do that at Thanksgiving dinner. You know, when Uncle Joe comes over and <laughs> says this terrible racist stuff. You know, that's a tiny thing. Uh, Acknowledge, again, that you have these amazing tailwinds because you're white that people of color do not have and use them. Mm -hmm. So, for example, go into your child's second grade classroom and say, hey, I'm just wondering, what are you teaching this year about people of color in an African-American curriculum? Is it just about slavery or are there maybe some engineers and heroes and visionaries that we can teach about as well? 
if you're not a person of color, that's even better if you go in and you ask the teacher mm-hmm. that, because it is your job to do that. Educate yourself. Don't rely on people of color to have to teach you their history, you know, or really anything about what their life is like. You should be figuring that out yourself. Put yourself into spaces where your face is not the predominant color in the room. It is very weird when you do that, yes, if you're a white person, because usually we are the predominant mm. color in America. Um, and the really easy thing you could do, this is like the simplest thing you could do. Everyone could do it right now. Mm. Go to your bookshelf and see if you have an equal number of writers of color as you do white writers. And if you don't, go to the library, go to the bookstore and fix that immediately. You know, not only should we be reading these authors because they're incredible authors, but, you know, when you read people who aren't like you, that's how your mind expands. Mm. You know, you also make me think about in the context of, of business and coaching and because I'm a business school professor, <laughs> you, uh, naturally, I think that way. Sponsorship. There's a yeah. difference between mentorship and sponsorship that not everybody understands. Mentoring mm. is, you know, of course, that's a good thing. And you mentor people, you give them some advice and you help them think about, you know, ways to navigate the world and mm-hmm. maybe introduce them to someone in your network. All great things. But then there's another level called sponsorship mm-hmm. where you actually go with them mm-hmm. or go directly to someone you know is going to be important, say you've got to talk to Mm -hmm. Sid or Jody or Mm -hmm. whoever it happens to be. And you literally are opening the doors. And I mean, that doesn't guarantee it, but you're doing much more than just advising you're doing. Right. Yeah. And I think that is important. And the only caveat I would say is beware of the white savior complex, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, when you come in going, I can fix all of your problems now Mm -hmm. and I have all the resources and you don't. So allow me to give you all these resources, because if you're doing it to feel better about yourself, you're not doing it for the right reasons. Often what what you need to acknowledge is that there are people in communities of color who know how to fix things and who are Mm -hmm. experts at whatever it is they do. How do you as a person for whom the door is always open and for whom there is always a seat at the table, make sure that someone who doesn't have that gets the microphone or gets the seat? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go through one other controversial topic. (laughs) That is uh, maybe the most recent book on abortion. Yeah. Uh, A spark of light. And that's really create a spark or a firestorm of controversy. Yep. So why why this topic? You're not afraid of anything. That's pretty clear <laughs> because you knew that this is going to yeah. light a fuse. Yeah, definitely. I, and that's why. The reason why is because I think I've wanted to write about women's reproductive rights for a while. It wasn't as though I knew that I, I was going to be writing about it literally from standing in the center of the firestorm. That would either be a happy or a really tragic coincidence, depending on how you look (laughs) at it. But I went on tour for this book during the Kavanaugh hearings. And then I'm going on tour again for the paperback next week when we have, I believe it's six states now that have passed heartbeat bills, you know, which effectively eradicates abortion in those states. And I mean, the reason why is because there's really no time like the present Mm -hmm. um, where we're starting to see Mm -hmm. women's voices obliterated. The reason I wanted to write the book, actually, for me, was, again, this sense of of a moral gray area. When I was in college, I had a really good friend who got pregnant. She and her boyfriend did not want to have a baby. They decided they were going to terminate. And I was 100% in support of that. Mm -hmm. I did everything I could to help her. Everything went fine without a hitch. And years later, I, she was, I'm trying to remember, she was, I think, I think she was seven weeks pregnant when she had the abortion. Mm -hmm. And I was pregnant with my third child Mm -hmm. and I was the same exact amount of time pregnant. And I desperately wanted that baby. You know, I was married. I was in a secure situation. And I started to have this complication with staining and bleeding. And I went up to DHMC and, you know, got checked out there. And I remember the radiologist, who was not a particularly feeling person, said, well, either it's going to stick or it's not. Nice. Yeah. Not what you should ever say to a you know, mother who's no to radiologists. <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> and yet I couldn't figure out why that same bundle of cells that was okay to terminate at seven weeks for my friend. And I believe that hundred percent was not something that I wanted to get rid of mm-hmm. at seven weeks. And, you know, I, it kind of led me to realize that laws are black and white, but the lives of women are all of these different shades of gray. And that's why we can't legislate mm-hmm. reproductive rights. And, That started to get me thinking, well, if that's the case, then why since 2020, 
2012 have we passed over 300 laws to restrict abortion in the United States alone. You know, why are we, America, a so-called progressive country behind Ireland, a Catholic country, mm. you know, on this issue? And, and that really was what informed this book, the idea that I could create a crucible of women in many different stages of life for many different reasons at a clinic on a certain day. Because it's also important to be said that what happens at these clinics is not just abortions. Planned Parenthood, 3% of their business is abortions. 97% is providing women's health care to women. So you get rid of Planned Parenthood, you get rid of all of that too. And so these women in my book are all there on a certain day and a gunman shows up and starts shooting. And what was fun for me was that the book goes backward in time. And that was a real challenge. It was very difficult to write. Mm. But I wanted to play with that metaphor that how we come to our beliefs is not something that's a snap decision. It's something that we learn at the knees of our parents and our pastors and our friends and our spouses. And I wanted to unravel each of these women all the way back to the moment that mm. they first began to think about reproductive rights and how they wound up on either side of the spectrum. And not just the women, but also there's a doctor involved who's a man. And the idea of going backward in time for a book that is about conception, the things that we conceive are not just fetuses, we also conceive ideas and beliefs. And so it was really fun to play with structure in this book, as well as a very heavy moral right. topic. You said that was hard to write because you had not written a book going backwards before. No, but I've wanted to since I read Charles Baxter's book, First Light, in the 1980s. I was like, man, this guy's a genius. I've got to try that one day. And I never found the right story to do it with until I got to this book. Yeah. And did you know what the story would look like going backwards or it just kind of happened as you're going along? Oh, no, no, nothing happens. <laughs> for this, I'm not a huge outliner for the most part. I usually write myself like a little three-page treatise about mm. a book. So I kind of know where I'm headed. Mm. I always know the beginning and I always know the end, but I never really know where I'm going to go exactly yeah, in between. Right, right. And for this book, I had a 48 page outline that went in reverse wow. and I had seven, seven or eight major characters. Something had to happen for each character in mm -hmm. each of those chapters as we went backward one hour in time. I had it all laid out, all planned out. Editing it was a nightmare. I made um, I made my husband go out and buy those little post-its in different colors. Yes. And I flagged every section by a different narrator or a different narrative voice, basically. And I edited the book in reverse for each character to make sure each thread was whole. And then I put it all together again and edited it going forward, which, of course, was theoretically reading it backward. I feel like I lost brain cells even just talking about that again. <laughs> do, you th do you think that's a book that people might be more likely to read twice? Not, mm -hmm. I mean, of course you want, I think you'd want people to read your books more than, more yeah. than once as a matter of principle, but because of the, the nature of the narrative and mm -hmm. going backwards and now that once you know everyone, like mm -hmm. you know their backstory, right. you can start reading about it and right at, I guess, the beginning of the book. Right. And, and so much of it, you'd view it differently. You'd think about it differently. I think so, especially because they're, the major twists that happen in this book, and there are many of them, happen at the end. And the beauty of it is that they happen at the end of the book, but in the earliest points of time which is hard to pull off. You know, how do you, how do you pull off a surprise when you know what happens on page one? Right. So yeah, I do think there's a reason that you would want to read it again. I think there, another one of my books, Leaving Time, has a massive twist at the end that I think I know people have gone back to reread because they're like, how did I miss this? You know, and then they want to see if they can spot all the clues I left them. Did you know about these twists when you start? That's in the outline. Yeah, I do. And you work your way through yeah. that and kind of intertwine it. Mm -hmm. What did you, uh, so you did a lot of research on this as well. I think I read you mm -hmm. interviewed or talked to over 150 women I did. that yeah. had abortions. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So during the process of research and even during writing, how did you thinking about this change, if at all? So I did a variety of things to learn about this. And, you know, I did start by doing research. I learned the facts that 88% of abortions happen in the first 12 weeks, that 75% of women who have abortions cite economic reasons, that seven out of 10 make less than the poverty level in America. And I then went through all the laws that have been passed. Mm -hmm. As I said, at this point now, there are over 300. And there have been even more since I, I last you know, did the, the bulk of the research for this. Everything from the trap laws in Texas that said uh, abortion clinics have to have hallways wide enough to accommodate two passing gurneys 
although abortion is the procedure, the medical procedure that has the smallest cause for uh, any complication. Uh, in fact, things that are more complicated are things like vasectomies and colonoscopies and childbirth, mm. you know, but this was obviously enacted as a measure to try to close down clinics mm-hmm. that couldn't afford to widen a hallway. Mm-hmm. You know, there are there was a, a law that was passed in 2016 by Mike Pence when he was the governor in Indiana that said that all women who want to terminate have to they have to cremate uh, or bury the remains even if they don't want to. You that, can do it. You can pass a law like that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and it was, it was passed and then it was overturned by an appeals court, you know, and now, of course, we have all these, quote, heartbeat laws, which are really cardiac fetal pole activity laws because there isn't a heart yet. And uh, in many cases, what they're saying is the minute that you have cardiac activity, you Mm -hmm. cannot terminate a pregnancy because that is, quote, life. And it is definitely a life process. I'm not going to argue with that. But, you know, it certainly isn't sustainable life on its own. And of course, the big question I have is all these activists who are so fervent about the heartbeat laws, where are they for organ donation when you have brain death but cardiac activity? Mm-hmm. If you're going to fight, be consistent in your fight. That's what I well, see. It. If, that, if that's your standard, you're going to be very disappointed. Right. The <laughs> right. But then after I did all that research, then I moved into the people and I actually mm-hmm. shadowed an amazing man named Dr. Willie Parker, who is an activist and probably one of the biggest feminists I've ever met. And he is an abortion provider in places like Mississippi and Alabama, where he flies around the country to provide his services to women who need the most. And I was able to observe in the room three abortions that he did and speak to the women. One was a five-week abortion, one was an eight-week abortion, and one was a 15-week abortion. And I can tell you the five-week and the eight-week abortion took less than three minutes. Mm. And the products of conception, which I was looking at, look no different than when you blow your nose and open a tissue. And the 15-week abortion was a little harder to see. It took longer. It took Mm. about seven minutes. And, you know, mixed in sort of this mucus was uh, things that seemed very, very tiny and very, very human. Mm-hmm. Scary to look at, mm-hmm. you know, but the woman who was on the table had three kids under the age of four. She could not afford to feed and knew mm-hmm. that she couldn't have a fourth child. So does that make her a really bad mom or a really good mom? Mm-hmm. And then I met with people who consider themselves pro-life because I wanted to hear that side of the story. I was surprised. I thought they would all be very religious zealots, people I would not get along with. They were great. I had a great time talking to them. I would have gone out to dinner with them, you know, and they really were coming from a place of great compassion. They truly believe that life begins at conception Mm -hmm. and they don't want to be anti-woman. They just don't know how else to frame this, their feelings. And finally, I talked to 151 women who had terminated pregnancies. Of those, one woman regretted it. All of them thought about it daily. And what I did learn, and this was the thing that shocked me the most, was that one out of four women has had an abortion in this country. Mm. Very few people talk about it because women have been conditioned by society to see themselves as monsters if they choose this. And because of that, when a woman doesn't speak, it isn't as though a void sits there. Someone Mm -hmm. else fills in the narrative Mm. and the narrative becomes one of blame and one of shame. And women don't tell their stories because of that. And I was on tour And I was listening to the confirmations and I was just like, women have to speak up. If you are brave enough to tell your story, I hope you'll tell it because it might make the next woman who has to terminate a pregnancy tell her story Mm -hmm. because the people who are getting abortions are not monsters. They are your siblings, your teachers, your neighbors. They're people, you know, it's that simple. Now there are presumably going to be people listening that will be vociferously against what you just said. Absolutely. And I mean, what could you say to them? Is there anything that you could say? To yeah, them? I would say, please read my book because I can't tell you how many people assume that I'm pro-life reading the book, mm. which I love. I love that you can't tell what I am. Mm. Um, it's a very fair representation mm. of people who are fervently believe life begins at conception and people who fervently believe in women's reproductive rights and the idea that a woman has the right to decide what to do with her mm. own body and with the fetus in it. And It's not that easy. You know, I'm not condemning anyone who believes that. Mm -hmm. I do feel personally that if you do not believe in abortion, you should never have an abortion and no one will ever force you to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe that you should take that choice away from somebody else. And here was the other thing that shocked me. When I was on tour and I hit the Mason-Dixon line, Mm -hmm. 
went south, and I would have hundreds of people at my events. And in some of the events, up to, I would say, 60, 50 to 60 percent of the women who were there in the Deep South would come up to me after to get a picture, to get a book signed, and they would whisper, I had an abortion when I was 18, 30, 42, whatever, but I'm pro-life. Hmm. And I would say to every single one of them, I'm really glad you had that choice when you needed it. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. And that is all I will say to the people who believe differently from me. I'm not going to tell you to think differently. You are absolutely entitled to your own beliefs. I just would hope that you wouldn't inflict them on someone else. Jody, so you've created a lot of characters. Mm -hmm. And we were talking earlier about some pretty powerful characters. Was there any character that was particularly emotionally challenging for you yeah. to actually create? hundred um, percent. And it was Turk in Small Great Things. One of the things I chose to do in that book, which was about racism, was to write from the point of view of an African-American nurse who has faced an incident of racism at work, mm -hmm. from the point of view of the white public defender who winds up defending her, and from the point of view of the skinhead who is the one who causes this incident at her place of business mm -hmm. after his, uh, he has a child and she's a labor and delivery nurse. And writing from Turk's point of view as a white supremacist made me sick mm. because I could do it so easily. Oh, You know, I would be like, I, every time I would type the N-word, I'd flinch and then three pages in, uh, it would just come. And every time I wrote one of his sections, I had to take a shower when I was done because really? I just felt disgusting. Oh, my it was really challenging. And what's funny is I hear from a lot of people who read that book and they go, I, I was too much. I mean, I had to keep putting it down because those sections were terrible. Well, I cut 75 pages of his narrative because wow. it was there was so much of it. Yeah. There was so much more I could have said based right. on the research I did with white supremacists, former. And I took it out because I didn't want people to become glazed Mm. by a flood of that information mm -hmm. to just tune out. I really needed them paying attention. Yeah, enough enough for them to know this is how this is what the mindset is. Absolutely. Enough to be turned off dramatically, but mm -hmm. not uh, not so much that they would put the whole thing down, which yeah. I guess some people actually did for a period of time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I'm sure people have asked you where you get your ideas, but what is that answer? <laughs> um, can I give you the best answer I ever heard that's not mine? Hey, it, was, we'll go for it. <laughs> it was from a writer at a Sydney Writers Festival in Australia. And she said, oh, they arrive every Tuesday wrapped in brown parcel. <laughs> for me, it really does come to down to the things that, that keep me up at night, the things I'm worried about. And it could be something I'm worried about as a wife, as a woman, as an American. It's the questions that I don't have the answers to, mm -hmm. but I still need to figure out. Mm -hmm. And if I'm thinking about it for several nights, and if I stay awake for several nights thinking about it, it's probably a really good idea for a book. Have you ever written a book or most of a book that you decided not to mm -hmm. finish or, or, or publish? Yep. I was writing a book and I was about 100 pages into it. Mm. And it actually, part of it took place almost like right outside your window. It was, uh, <laughs> it was based on, it was because uh, where we live near the Dartmouth campus I don't know what makes Dartmouth students do it, but they wear black and they cross the street in the middle of the night on their phones, not looking at anyone or anything. And I was convinced I was going to hit one of them. Mm -hmm. And so I started to think what would happen if there was a hit and run based on that, you know. And so yeah. that was kind of what I was writing about. And my mom had read 100 pages. My agent had read 100 pages. They kept saying, oh, this is really good. I can't wait to hear what happens next. And it was it was a really it was a good book. It was not a great book. And I think I knew that because the whole time I was writing, I kept hearing someone in the back of my head say, I was six years old the first time I disappeared. Over here, over here. I was six years old the first time I disappeared. And I got so sick of hearing it that I sat down one day and I wrote 40 pages in that voice. And I read it and I went, oh, that's the book I'm supposed to write. Huh. And that became Vanishing Acts. And did that come up, do you think, because you were doing this? Had nothing to do with the other book. I never published the other book. I never will. Because like I said, it was a good book, but it wasn't a great book. And I think my readers deserve to get great from me at whatever moment of yeah. my life I'm at. It doesn't sound like it was all that painful to put it down, but no. that's, it, it wasn't. No, no. But usually by the time that I do, I just do so much research for my books. I will do months of research mm -hmm. for my books. And so usually I will know before I write whether it's going to work or not. And I would jettison it if I didn't think it was going to work. Yeah. And that was the only time that I had physically written a number of pages. And I was like, mm, no, 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 not going to work. Right. So the process of writing then, you write every day? 
I usually write five days a week. Yeah. Like a regular job. Like a regular job. Yeah. yeah. Although when my kids left, then I started to work a little on weekends and, you know, it yeah. depends. And you have a room in your house or a separate studio? I have an attic. Yeah. I am the mad woman in the attic. And <laughs> um, I, uh, I have a little office up there, but it doesn't have a lock on the door. My kids used to come up all the time and, you know, now my dogs come in and... <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I, you know, people, people that are not writers always wonder, how, what, what do you do? How do you do this? And you lock yourself up. And then when no. you start reading about it, you discover it's a job. And you, no, you show up and you go to work and you, you, you write. A hundred percent. Phil it. Roth said that. No, Everyone yeah. said that. And some days you write really, really well. And some days you spend a lot of time shoe shopping on the Internet. You know, but <laughs> but you can always I always say you can edit a bad page. You can't edit a blank page. So you've got to get something down. Mm. And for me now, I'm, I'm at a really interesting juncture of my life where I'm writing things that are different from just novels, too. And so, like today, I was not writing a novel, which I'm 465 pages in the middle of because I was working with a co-writer writing a libretto for a musical. Hmm. And so it's a very different kind of writing, but really fun because it's expanding my mind and my creativity in different areas. Yeah. Yeah. So is that something you're going to start doing a little bit more? Yeah. More that's something I have been doing. Yeah. Which yeah. is really fun. So have you ever found a situation when the writing really didn't flow well? I don't mean for a day or maybe even mm. for a week, but for it's never happened. No. And I'll tell you why, because I started doing this professionally when my kids were tiny. Mm. You know, I was writing a book a year and I had three kids under the age of five. And I was the primary caretaker at that point. Mm -hmm. And so I would write literally when they were napping, when they were asleep at night, when they went to organize school. I mean, wow, an eight hour school day is a gift, you know, <laughs> and it was literally any time that I could find. I still remember taking my laptop to nursery school. My oldest son was in nursery school and having it up on the, uh, the steering wheel as I was typing while I was waiting for them to bring the kids out. Like any time I could, I was writing. And you can, you, you were able to, obviously yeah. able to focus and get something. Done I had to, I didn't have a choice. Yeah. And I think that I do believe that writer's block is for people who have the luxury of time. And I will offer this up as an example. When you were in college and you had writer's block and you couldn't get that essay out, isn't it miraculous how that cleared up the night before the essay was due? Mm, it's a miracle. A miracle. Yeah. yeah. So if you don't have time, you do the work. You put in the time and you write. And like I said, some days are good days and some days are not so good days, but you can always edit and you know something that's on paper. You can always fix right, it. Right, right. How did it feel the first time you had a number one bestseller in New York Times list? I still remember where I was. Of course. I was, <laughs> I'm, I'm not shocked yeah. to hear it. <laughs> um, I was on book tour, which is usually a very sad little thing. You know, most people think, oh, it's so glamorous. You're all dressed up and you're drinking champagne and there are parties for you. That you're is not, not doing that. No. <laughs> no, book tour is like a whole different level of hell. I was wandering around a mall in Chicago because I had one hour before my next event and I didn't have an appropriate coat and I was freezing. Oh, and so I was like, yeah. I've got to find a coat. I've got to, I've got to buy a coat. You come sale. from New England. You didn't have a... <laughs> no, I don't remember why. I don't remember, but I had okay. not packed a long coat or something. Mm. And so I was wandering around this mall and, um, and my phone rang and it was my editor and she said, you're number one. And I remember sinking down onto a bench and just holding my phone and sitting there with this silly grin on mm. my face, you know, and then I called my husband and then I called my mother and, you know, mm -hmm. I was super excited. I did buy a coat and then <laughs> I went out and bought champagne and I brought it to my event that night so that everybody so that, that was could the time celebrate. you did have champagne. Yeah, that was it, but I had to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, I mean, when you start off, do you ever imagine it? You dream it, perhaps. I don't think I ever even dreamt it. Yeah. I honestly, when I started writing, I was just hoping that someone other than my mother's friends would buy my books. <laughs> You know, and there was, I remember a tipping point where I was like, my mom doesn't have this many friends. And I still, honestly, I still pinch myself. I cannot believe how fortunate I have been, particularly because it was not an easy road to this. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people are always like, oh, you were an instant bestseller. I was like, was I though? You know, because I, I really wasn't. I didn't sell anything until about seven books in. Mm -hmm. I just finished writing my 25th novel. I'm on my 26th. I was never an Oprah pick. People are absolutely sure I was an Oprah pick. I never was. No, you know, I, I crossed really, that off yeah, my list of I did questions. It, right. I did it the old fashioned way, you know, which is through word of mouth. And I had like five people who bought my first hardcover and they told their friends. And then I had 10 people who bought mm -hmm. the next one. And, and it was exponential that way. And I've been very fortunate in one thing, which is to have amazing readers who stuck with me no matter what I wanted to write, mm -hmm. because I don't write about easy stuff. 
And I am so fortunate to have readers who are like, okay, we're going there and just pick up the book and, and buy it and read it. I'm also really lucky to have publishers that have done that. Because at the beginning, everyone wanted to kind of shoehorn me, you know, is this women's fiction? Is it thriller? Is it romance? Is it mystery? And I would say my books are none and all of those. And nobody was really writing moral and ethical fiction. There are more people who are doing it now. I'd like to say maybe I pushed that out a little bit. And I certainly wasn't the first. I mean, you can credit Dickens with that and Jane Austen. And, you know, I come from a very long line of people doing a lot of really good work. But when I started publishing in the late 80s, that was not a cool thing to be writing. And no one knew how to market it. And I could have given up and I could have written about three women meeting in a hot tub who find out they're dating the same guy. But that was not the book I wanted to write. And because of that, I didn't have an overnight bestseller, but I did gain readers who were willing Mm -hmm. to travel with me. So I guess it's six of one, half dozen of another. I feel like I made the right choice, but I still think that my novels defy a categorization. I am often called a women's fiction writer. I think that really just means I'm a woman from what I can tell because I I have tracked it and over 50% of my fan mail comes from men. And so much for that theory then, right? Yeah. No, women's yeah. fiction really just huh. means that there's something between your legs as opposed to a different thing. And honestly, I think that it's reductive to say that a woman writes only for women because that is not true. Mm-hmm. And we know we certainly know that women read both men and women. We also know that men tend to read men, which is an interesting fact. Men are more likely to read men, male authors than women, than, but women are not. Mm-mm. Women read, women more, read more than men anyways. Mm-hmm. And women also buy more books. And when I do get mail from men, often it starts with, I'm sure I'm your only male reader. And I'm like, honey, it's okay. You're in good company. Like they need to apologize for it. And I find that really interesting because I wouldn't say there's, there are a couple of my books that I would say might be more female centric. Certainly I think women might be very attuned to a book about reproductive rights for women. Mm. But I actually think men need to be the one to read that as well. You know, so I wouldn't say that I push in one genre uh, towards one gender or another. I'm always confounded by that. The thing about categories, and I've seen it in a lot of mm. different fields, people feel such a need to define a category for whatever it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. And the risk is becoming pigeonholed in there. Yes. Especially if there's some early, early mm-hmm. success. And then, you know, there's there's some research that talks about categorization in terms of innovation mm-hmm. and like the classic thing in Hollywood. So what's your movie about? Well, my movie's like Star Wars, but Meets. it's really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so right. you, you have to ground it in something everyone knows yeah. works. And then say, but it's a little bit different. Right. And it's, it's funny about that. I think that's part of a human human yeah. nature. I'm, I'm not sure if that's the industry that does that. But I think people, people are attracted to that type of thing. And I think in publishing, it becomes even more wrinkly because you also have the categories of literary and commercial fiction. Mm-hmm. And so literary fiction tends to win all the prizes. Commercial fiction tends to sell better. I sell really, really well, but I would be the first person to tell you that I don't write a beach read either, Mm. you know, and if you are looking at my books as beach read, you have terrible (laughs) vacation, you know, and I think that to be, again, that narrow is wrong because I don't know of anyone, I don't know of any reader who goes, I only read literary fiction. I think what they look for is a good book. Why is there that categorization between literary fiction and and kind of more commercial fiction? And it's true in, in movies yeah. too, though. Also, sure, know, it's just it's like Indian art house movie, in the art house mm-hmm. type movie, and they're yeah. not going to make a lot of money. But we have to do that, right? Because you know we just have to show we're a legitimate place. But really, we want you know the next Disney movie, right? I think it's a marketing thing. Uh, certainly, that was uh, the impetus for many genre categories and as well for the idea of a literary and commercial base, because when way, way, way back you had Borders and Barnes and Noble, they needed to know where to shelf your books. Uh And so they got to put it somewhere. Right. Exactly. Mm. So that, that they only physically could put it in one place as Mm -hmm. opposed to Amazon that could put it in a hundred places. And they do. (laughs) Exactly. Right. But that didn't exist back then. Exactly. So it is really interesting, but I do think it comes down to marketing. That was, I think the beginning of all that. The other thing that you mentioned, I want to just jump on for a second is that it wasn't, wasn't until your seventh book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then people said, you know, wow, you're, you're like an overnight sensation. Mm -hmm. I find that such a classic human nature. I know. I'm like, really? It didn't feel like overnight to me. It's it's (laughs) 20 years overnight or whatever, whatever, whatever it was. I know. I think, that's what people don't know. And sometimes you look at someone and say, wow, she's so lucky or he's so lucky. Mm-hmm. They just hit it big. They got. They don't know no. what kind of blood, sweat and tears mm-hmm. went behind them. People shouldn't be fooled to think. Right. Of course, there are the occasional stories right. of someone just magically hitting it out of the park. But 
Yeah. You, you learn your craft and then, you know, build your audience Absolutely. as you talked about. Yeah. All those things. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. So time of building the audience, you have this great connection, right? Yeah. With your, with yeah. your readers and you're talking to your readers even in our, yeah. in our conversation now. How, how'd this happen? How'd you build this community? So I was one of the first authors to have a website. How cool is that? What? Yeah. One of the first. One of the first. Isn't that neat? I know. It was a million years ago. I'm also I'm, old. That's I'm, not, I'm looking and saying, that's hard to imagine. <laughs> it's totally true. I mean, a lot of authors just didn't. And I was really lucky. I have a great webmaster who's been with me the whole time and was very attuned to making sure that we were advancing um, along with technology. You know, so when people yeah. began looking at websites on their phones, it wasn't like you weren't looking at Garble Decook. You could actually see yeah, my yeah, stuff. And, yeah. you know, it was a challenge for him, too, because a writer's website has a lot of content on it. You can't be scrolling for 8,000 years before yeah. you get to the content you want. So it's been a, a really interesting challenge as technology changes to present yourself in a technological way that makes sense and that adapts. So that was the first thing. Then came the rise of social media. And this is what I call the American idolization of publishing, where all of a sudden, you couldn't be the guy in the ivory tower mm -hmm. who only wrote and walked around, you know, pinching his temples in deep thought all the time. You actually had to create a brand. And the interesting thing about that to me is that I am definitely outgoing. I am not an introvert. So I am an odd mix for mm -hmm. a writer because a mm -hmm. lot of writers are introverts. I love going out on book tour and meeting my readers. I love putting on the show when it's time to talk about right. a book. That's fun for me. That's the failed actress in me. That's what today's culture supports mm -hmm. because part of finding readers and being able to, to draw readers from all walks of life and mm -hmm. all interests is... For them to be able to locate you mm -hmm. and for them to feel like they're getting personal time with you. They want to know you're a real person. Yeah. So I actually am very active on all social media. Well, not all social media. Like I don't do TikTok. I don't know what that is. But, um, <laughs> but for example, I use Facebook is used by me and my publicist and my team at, at Random House, which is where I'm published now to really launch information about books, mm -hmm. to make sure there are tours on there. We post videos about the books and backstage information about me talking about the books. It's very much a business site for mm -hmm. me. Now, I will admit that I also have a private Facebook page because I love having 600,000 friends, but they're not really <laughs> my 600,000 friends. So I have a secret page, you know, which is also one that I use just for my real friends and you family. You know, everyone's going to be trying to suss that well, one out. Well, good luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the type of challenge people rise to. We can't <laughs> I still have to accept them as a friend. Though. Yes, that's true. But so I see that as my most mainstream yeah. form of social media. Instagram is great because mm. my Instagram feed is literally all dogs and books. Hmm. That's it. And I usually, you know, will post pictures of myself behind the scenes. I'll post pictures of things I'm doing with my family, with my friends. Mm -hmm. It is much more of a come and see what I'm like when I'm not yeah. Jody the author. Yeah. And what I love about that kind of branding mm -hmm. is that you control what you're putting out in the world. Mm. I'm not going to reveal something that I don't want revealed to the populace. Of course, yeah. Not that I have so many terrible <laughs> secrets or anything, but you know, it's nice to know what you're sharing and to feel comfortable yeah. with the parts of you that you're sharing. Yeah. You know, I mean, I hear from people all the time, things like, uh, like John Grisham, when I first met him, mm. he came up to me and he's a very charming, very sweet man. He goes in his Southern accent you are all over my house because his, <laughs> his wife and his daughters have been reading me They're for reading years. Books. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love that. I thought that was really funny. And, you know, you do spend time on someone's bedside. It's quite intimate. So mm. people feel like they really know you. Mm. And I think, too, I'm asking my readers to go to some really hard places. And you, as a reader, bring things to a book mm. that change your experience of the book and that really make it personal for you. So there is a real trust level. Mm. And I think that's why I feel okay sharing a little bit of my home life with people as well. Right, right. And so that's Instagram. And then the final thing is Twitter. Twitter is where I'm political. So if you don't want to know my political views, do not follow me on Twitter. But I really do. I don't have an assistant. I never have. I answer all my own email. I get about 200 letters a day from fans. I answer every single one of them. And I think that's really important. I've been doing it since I had a web page and people could get in touch with me because 
there are a lot of books out there and you chose mine and right. it is very good manners to be able to say thank you. Yeah. So it's actually, I mean, it's a real commitment. You're spending time 100%. on this. It is, yeah. but it's, I think really it's time well spent. When you say 200 letters, I mean, getting letters in the mail mail or email. I don't, at this point, I no longer answer snail mail because I just can't do it all. Because you'd have to. But I do it, say right? on my website, I yeah. do not answer snail mail, but yeah. I will answer email. And But you still get snail mail. Oh yeah. But not that much. Not as yeah, much. much. It's usually from yeah. pe- older people who are not the internet. Or, so, or people in jail. I get a lot of letters from people in do jail. You? Well, yeah, I do. You, I do. That's been part of your research, too. Is that, that <laughs> yes. up like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> so just a short bit of time left. A few quick questions. Storytelling. Maybe this is not quite as quick as some others, but <laughs> we'll make it quick. I feel like we're in a golden age for storytelling. Mm. You know, we have the moth and lots of other organizations and events like that. Anyone can have their own blog and some of them are telling <laughs> stories, some of them doing other things, but some of them telling stories and mm-hmm. you could self-publish on Amazon and other places. Uh, it, so even though journalism is under attack, I mean, making money in journalism, what the problem is, mm. journalism is booming, actually. Yeah. People just don't pay you for it. Right, right. Uh, but what's your, I mean, are we in a golden era of story of storytelling? I think we're in a glut of storytelling. Mm. Just because you can tell a story doesn't necessarily mean that you should tell a story. And I offer self-publishing up as an example of that. There are times that I completely advocate for self-publishing. If you really would like to get down on paper the story of your family history and give it to your grandchildren, that is a really good use of Mm self-publishing. But one of the amazing things about the publishing world is that the gatekeepers that have traditionally been in place are still pretty much in the same place as when mm-hmm. I started 25 yeah. years ago, with a few except notable exceptions. But, you know, if you really want to be published widely, you still pretty much do need to find an agent. And you still pretty much need that agent to find you a publisher because yes, you can self-publish. You and I can both go home and publish on Amazon tonight. And there is a world for that and a reason for that. But if you're going to write a book and expect it to be in Barnes and Noble and at the top of the Amazon charts, and if you're going to hope to reach the masses, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a hard time doing it alone. Yeah. It's not to say you can't, but you're going to be working your tail off. You're going to be going on book tour. You're going to be talking to book clubs. You're going to be going to libraries. You're going to be donating copies of your book so that people read it and then tell other people about it. It's a lot of work to not have the bulk and heft of a marketing machine of a publisher behind you. I have an army. I am really lucky to have that army because I do not want to be a general and an army, you know? (laughs) And so I think there is still that, for me, that sense that when you publish traditionally, not only do you have the marketing machine, but you also know that someone is copy editing those books. I am not going to read a book and get really annoyed with all of the spelling errors and the grammar errors Mm -hmm. that are going to distract me from the story. It takes a long time. It can take people years to find an agent, you know, and some never do. That's right. But there's this belief that if you put in your due diligence, Mm -hmm. then you get like that feather in your cap. Mm. I get letters from people saying, I got three rejections from agents. I just don't know what I'm going to do. I had over a hundred rejections from agents before I found my agent. She had never represented a single human in her life. And she was starting (laughs) an agency. And I was like, yes, yes, do it. And she took me on. She sold my book in three months and she's still my agent 25 years later. Yeah. So, you know, it it does take a little bit of time. And I think sometimes in a world where we're used to instant gratification, Mm -hmm. it's hard to remember that sometimes instant isn't best. Yeah. I mean, your story about being rejected so many times, actually, it's a common story for great writers, for for anyone. Yeah. It's amazing. What other, I know you like a lot of other writers, but who's near the top of the list? Like, let's say right now, there's other people you're reading. Okay. So I just finished The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. He is amazing. You read the other one, The Underground? I did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's one of our literary treasures right Mm -hmm. now. Like I was telling my husband, I'm like, this guy's just, he's just so good. He said, should I read it? I said, no, you'll just be crying the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, he's such a good writer. Mm -hmm. Alice Hoffman is my all time favorite writer. I would read anything that that woman publishes. She has a book coming out in a couple of weeks called The World We Knew, which is, I think, her best book to date. I realize that I probably say that about everything, but I really mean it with this one. It really is quite beautiful. I read widely across genres and 
male and female, all colors. Celeste Ng is another remarkable mm-hmm. author. A Little Fires Everywhere was such an incredible book. And Isabel Allende. God, of course, now that you're asking me, I'm, I can't put my fingers so, on anyone. Well, what but, about... Yeah. Um, you give uh, me some. I'll tell you if I like well, them. <laughs> Margaret Atwood. Oh, God, yeah. Well, <laughs> of course. Think, that's what I'm reading next, actually. Yeah. It's next up on my Kindle. It's Kindle. pretty amazing what's happened to Mar- <sighs> uh, Margaret Atwood. You know, as, she's, uh, she's been a writer for decades and decades. Yeah. Very influential books. She was on the, what did you call it, the literary side. Yes, she's, yes. And now, now she's the very Handmaid's Tales is a whole other... Uh, um, whole can other I just story. tell you, this is one of the great moments of my publishing yeah. career. She came up to me and she goes, I've been wanting to talk to you. Oh, my. And I was like, you know I live on this planet, really? <laughs> um, That's great. She's just incredible. But yeah. she was she wanted to talk to me about activism and fiction. Mm. Which was really kind of cool. That's right. That, that, I could have died both, after that, that talk. You, you yeah. have that in common. <laughs> wow. So uh, you're, um, you mentioned your your kids. You're married. I am. How did you meet your husband? Okay, this is such a good story. So I went to Princeton. And when I got to Princeton, I found myself getting really sad. I was really, really homesick. And I wanted to be part of something and join something, but I didn't really know what to do. And I happened to have seen the head of the Charles and I thought it was pretty. I knew nothing about rowing. Mm. And I marched myself into the head coach's office and I said, I would really like to be a manager or coxswain or something for the team. And he said, well, the women already have a manager. And Mm. I said, "I, I don't care. I'll do it for the guys. So he told me when their, you know, initial meeting was that mm-hmm. fall, thinking I was never going to show up. And I did. And they wound up having their first female manager ever. So I was technically the first woman on a men's team at Princeton. Mm. And then they used me. They taught me everything I needed to know about crew. And I wound up being a coxswain as well and seat racing when we were, um, you know, competing when the guys were competing against each other to figure out where they would be in the boats. And one of the guys that I met was this guy named Tim Van Leer, and he was unbelievably cute, and he was dating this beautiful little debutante who was the head women's coxswain. And we, the two of us were just buddies. We actually became mm. friends with another guy who was a coxswain on the men's team. And the three of us would all pal around together. And I, I still remember he treated me the equivalent of like the boy in Little House on the Prairie who would dunk your, you know, your pigtails in the inkwell. <laughs> like I still remember I would, I was sitting in a sling, which is where the boats are, the things that look like uh, giant little U's. Mm-hmm. And I just was sitting there reading a book, waiting for practice to begin. And he walked up and just shoved me off the sling. Like, not saying anything, just shoved me off this link. And anyway, we were just really good friends for three years. He was a year ahead of me. And his senior year, he was the captain of the team. Mm-hmm. And as the manager, we had a joint checking account, which I found interesting and prescient. And he graduated, you know, he was mm-hmm. still dating that girl. And I was dating one of the starting five on the men's basketball team. Wow. And I had been for years. And this guy broke up with me in January and I was a mess, absolute mess. And Tim called this other guy who was a friend of ours, the coxswain, and was like, hey, how's Jody doing? And he said, oh, my God, she's a mess. This guy broke up with her, blah, blah, blah. He goes, give me your number because nobody had cell phones then. So he called me in my room and he said, you should come visit me. I'm working out on Cape Cod. And I said, awesome, I'll come this weekend because it was formal house parties weekend and I just did not want to be on campus. So I went down and I visited him. And all of a sudden, we were not friends anymore. (laughs) And and, uh, I came back and I was like, it's okay. This was a great weekend. I know you're never going to call me again. He was like, why would you think that? And I said, I I mean, because you're you and I'm me. Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, I'm going to call you. And sure enough, he called me as I was getting off the plane back in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And he kept coming to visit me. And two years later, we got married. Wow. That is a great story. It is, but I still, and, and, and the best part of this is that after I left Princeton, they have only had female managers and they now have female coxswains on the team. Well, there's so there it's got go. do- double win. <laughs> uh, people can see Jody now, but she is beaming <laughs> from so the good. story yes. and from the result of the story. Yeah. Two quick last questions. So I started a men's book club not that long ago, actually a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and we read nonfiction, fiction, all sorts of things. What's the one book you wish more men, of your books, you wish more men would read Of my books, I would say A Spark of Light. And it's because just as in a world that is predominantly white, it is on white people to dismantle racism. And in a world that is primarily heterosexual, it is on heterosexual people to combat homophobia. Mm. We live in a patriarchy in America. 
And so I can scream into the void as much as I want with any other woman, but it's going to take our allies, Mm -hmm. our husbands, our fathers, our sons to stand up and say, hey, you know what? Women deserve to be heard and women's rights matter. Last question. Imagine that you went back to when maybe it's Princeton days when you were 21 years old and you sat next to the young Jody sitting there doing whatever she was doing. And if you had to offer one bit of advice, you kind of cozy up next to her and say, Jody, you really want to pay attention to this. What what would that what would that advice be? Don't take the job with Solomon Brothers. (laughs) (laughs) That was how I started. I was a financial analyst when I left college. And I actually was writing bond offering circulars for Standard & Poor's and Moody's in their commercial paper. That was your first writing gig. That was my first writing gig. (laughs) It was incredibly boring. I knew more about fiat than anyone on the planet at one point. And And that's not the card. (laughs) Yeah. And then we, it was October 87 and the stock market crashed and they got rid of the entire department. Right. And, you know, I was really, I did it because my dad had been in finance. And I think many of us, when we don't really know what to do, mm-hmm. follow our parents. And I never really believed that anyone can make a living writing. Yeah. And but you had I, thought you were thinking about it. You were ready. You had ready. Written, oh, you I loved things. writing. Yeah. But yeah. I wasn't going to pay my rent doing it. Who do yeah. you know who's a writer? You. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't know that back then. So I would say, don't take the job. It's going to be okay. Yeah. Thank you. Jody Pico. What a pleasure. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the SITCAST. I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode, and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesitcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SITCAST is produced by the Podcast Laundry production company and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.